Uh, okay, let's go ahead and begin class uh, with a prayer. Father God, we just want to thank you so much for this morning and an opportunity where we can come and study and learn more about you and who you are, what you do, uh, and how your son represents uh, what you have called us to be, what an example he is. And so, Jesus, I want to thank you for that. Lord, I'm thankful that you came down to this earth. I'm thankful that you had the power to rise again. Uh, and I am thankful so much that you were gracious enough to leave your spirit upon each one of us uh, so that we can continue to sh share and shed your light to other people. Uh, it's all in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Um, some of you, one of you in particular, will look on this one log and cringe just a little bit thinking about uh, what it's like to have these things stacked on you. Uh, as we looked at last week, there's a lot of uh, ramifications or consequences, or repercussions to forgiveness. Forgiveness does not, unforgiveness does not travel alone. It has many companions. Hate is one of them. Uh, you, you, you can't take, you can't take uh, just unforgiveness and couple it with happiness. They don't work together. Uh, they're not friends. Uh, his writing companions, unforgiveness, are many in number in which we looked at last week. Uh, those who struggle with unforgiveness uh, have issues uh, of feeling abandoned, anger, apathy, betrayal, blaming, feeling cheated, uh, denial, depression, disappointment, frustration, guilt, hurt, inadequacy, injustice, isolation, lack of confidence, lack of motivation, lack of sleep, loss of focus, rebellion, relational issues, resentment, revenge, self-loathing, shame, shock, stress, feelings of suicide and worthlessness, just to name a few. It's interesting because... Uh, if you were to get on your computer, laptop, desktop, and you were to write a document, and within that document you typed out the word unforgiveness, do you know what's going to happen? There's going to be a little red squiggly line underneath that word. For some reason, the people who created the spell checker for Microsoft Word and other word processors decided that unforgiveness is not really a word. And wouldn't it be great if we could blot out unforgiveness from our dictionaries? That it didn't exist, but the reality is, is that it does. And because it does, we are left to be re redefined, not as daughters of God, but instead, as we talked about last week, we become the cynical co-worker, the caustic friend, the belligerent neighbor, the ugly girl, the scorned wife, the bitter Christian, the vengeful sibling, and the victim. And because of that, we can spend most of our life as a victim of something that happened years and years ago. We become to associate ourselves and define ourselves by an action that happened to us years ago, and we continue to live out that life. So why is it so important to forgive? Well... These logs are a good example, but as we ultimately discovered, the reason why forgiveness is so important is because of the words of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 6. For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your Father will forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And it's interesting, the more that I thought about this, I don't know if this was an epiphany or a revelation. This is something probably all of you came to understand a long time before that. But the forgiveness that God offers is not dependent upon whether or not I forgive other people. Just because I forgive someone doesn't mean that they don't have to deal with God. Uh, And I don't know if that provides uh, any comfort. I'm reminded of, of Romans when Paul says, if someone is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you heap burning coals on their head. And I think in some ways that's what forgiveness does. It, it doesn't mean that they won't have consequences. And that's something we're going to talk about a little bit later on uh, in our study is this idea of uh, justice. And is it just, is it right to forgive someone because you're freeing them from some crime that they have committed, uh, if not legally, at least morally, they've done something against you. But we're going to spend a little bit of time in the scriptures today, and I want to talk a little bit about a guy by the name of Jonah. When I say Jonah, what do you think of? The whale, the big fish. I mean, that's, that's what most of us think about from the time we're real little. When we hear the word Jonah, we think about the guy in the belly of a fish. And of course, as we understand from the Old Testament, that's one of the places that Jonah was. But before that, uh, he ended up going in the opposite direction. Uh, Some of you are familiar with a story. Uh, God came to Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach to them. Jonah says, okay. Doesn't argue, doesn't complain. And then he packs his bags and heads west. (laughs) Tarshish is where he's headed for. He hops on a boat. The red eye, the first one out of the port to get away, go the opposite direction. Because God had said in three days, if they don't repent, they're going to die. I'm going to strike them dead. And I think think maybe Jonah got the impression, if I can get lost (laughs) real quick, then, well, I can't get there in time and they're all going to be destroyed. That wasn't the timetable that God had for him. But nonetheless, he headed the wrong direction. He was thrown overboard, swallowed by a fish. And if you love reading prayers in the Bible, Psalms is a good place to find them. But Jonah chapter 2 is excellent. Mainly because the words that you hear from Jonah are not the words that you think would have been uttered by a man who's in the belly of a fish or a whale. Either one, I think, would be pretty disgusting, regardless of whether, you know, it had the hole and shot the water out of the top. It's, you know, the cartoons really don't do justice to how gross and disgusting it might have been. But as you read Jonah chapter 2, you get the feeling that he's on a mountaintop with the sun about to rise and he can see the beauty all around him. But instead, he's in a dark, slimy, smelly stomach of a fish. And yet he praises God for the deliverance that he has received. Um, it's not really the way I prefer to travel, but it worked for Jonah. He spit out on to the beach. And so that's kind of the end of the story, right? I mean, it, when, when we're Sunday school teachers, that's where we go. We stop right there. I mean, you know, there's kind of this afterthought of, oh yeah, he does go on to Nineveh, but there's not a lot of detail put into that. Well, 
It's amazing how, in my opinion, Jonah just continues to emphasize um, some of the aspects of forgiveness. Because in the belly of the fish, he's praising God for his deliverance. And you think, wow, he's really changed. He's turned around quite a bit, but maybe not so much because he walks into Nineveh. And by the way, Nineveh is the capital of the nation of Assyria. Assyrians, good or bad? Bad. Uh, in about 70 years, they're going to roll on down in. They're up, they're up north of Israel. They're going to come down and they're going to take the ten tribes into captivity. And they are just going to have their way with them. And so this is one really good reason why Jonah shouldn't forgive them. I mean, it would really be unfair because these are a barbaric group of people who hate the Israelites and the Israelites hate them, and he's doing no one any good by offering any kind of forgiveness. And he goes there and, in my opinion, might be the best preacher ever. You want to know why? As we have recorded in the Old Testament, he walked into the city about a days, uh, about a, a day in, which it, it says earlier it takes three days to walk across, so he doesn't even make it to the middle. Walks in about a day's journey, <clears throat> clears his throat, and gives his sermon, which is five words long. <laughs> Basically, you're going to die. <laughs> That's kind of what he says. God is going to strike you dead turns around and walks out. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty efficient sermon. I mean, I like Max Lucado. He's one of my favorites. But, and even his best books, none of them he can get done in just five words or even five pages. It takes several chapters. Jonah, not only does he have a short sermon, but it's very, very effective. Because the Ninevites realize that they need to repent. And, and, I mean, they're serious about this idea of repenting. Not only do they repent and get in sackcloth, this is a great story. They go get all their animals, and they put them in sackcloth. Now, I'm a city slicker. I'm not a farm guy. I, I don't know much about those animals. I don't want to be around chickens unless it's, you know, been grilled. I don't like them with the feathers still on and running around. They, they went after their animals and put them in sackcloth because they said, this is the real deal. We're going to die. And they asked for repentance. Jonah goes up on the side of the mountain, and you know what he's waiting for? Fireworks. He can't wait to figure out how, how God is going to annihilate, destroy, thump the Ninevites, just, just clean white. He doesn't know. He's thinking, you know, maybe it'll be these big meteorites or maybe it'll be lightning. I, you know, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I'm excited. I can't wait to see it. And he sits down and realizes that God, that God is not going to kill him. And he gets really mad. You remember what he says? You know what he says about God? He says, God, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Now, that's a really nice verse. And in fact, he's quoting it. But it's the kind of verse that when we write it, 
we put it in nice little calligraphy and we frame it and we mat it and we put it up on our wall. God, you are slow, you're gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Um, that's, not how, that's not how Jonah said it. Jonah said it more like, I knew it! I knew you would do this! I tried to run away because here's what happens. I come here and what do you do? You're gracious and you're compassionate and you're slow to anger and you're abounding in love. This was an indictment. This is not a poem. This was not a compliment. This was, I'm mad at you because look what you've done. Forget about forgiveness. Get the meteorite engine started up and let's tear these people to bits. And Jonah sits up on, on top of this mountain and he sulks and he's mad because he serves a gracious and compassionate God. Does that make you mad sometimes? Does it make you mad when God is gracious and compassionate? Man, God, I wish you, all, I wish you weren't so gracious and compassionate. If you've been hurt really bad and you see the, if you see the offender walking around with smiles on his face and benefiting or she's benefiting from something that happened, they completely crushed you, talked behind your back, stepped all over you, went after your children. There are times that you think, God, do you have to be so gracious and compassionate? Do you have to be slow to anger? I mean, can you be a little quicker to anger? I mean, you don't have to abound in love. I mean, love is great, but don't abound in it. Send it to me, but not to that person. That's how Jonah felt. Jonah's up on the mountain. God allows this um, tree to grow up, and so he's in the shade. He's stewing, but at least he's a little bit cooler. God sends a worm. The worm eats the tree. Jonah gets mad again. He says, God, how could you let this happen? And Jonah, the book, ends basically with a question. Why are you so concerned? about that little tree, but don't care anything about the 120,000 people in that city who would have died. Jonah is not really about a big fish. What it's really about is forgiveness. Did God forgive the people of Nineveh when they repented? Yes. So what's, what's the book of Jonah really all about? I really think the book of Jonah is about this. I think God says, listen, if life is, the pl if life is a play, I take the leading role in forgiveness. But I call each one of my children to be a part in that forgiveness. It wasn't simply that God forgave him. He called Jonah to forgive this nasty, unruly people. And of course, if you watch Veggie Tales, they walk around slapping each other in the face with a fish. So um, that's another story, and hopefully you'll have time to look at that one. So forgive and forget. Why is it so important? Because it's about us coming to understand that we have to be a part of that forgiving process. I've shared this with some of you um, several months ago, because uh, I, I'm really into the idea of, of forgiveness. Uh, but I, I want you to join with me as I, I read this. is 
from one of the books I've talked about several times, Dr. Lewis Smead's Forgive and Forget. I told you I don't like the title at all, but the book is great. Uh, <clears throat> and here we're going to be introduced by a young woman by the name of Jane and see if you can understand her hurt and why it's so hard for her to be called to forgiveness. Jane Miller, take Jane Miller for example. Jane and her husband Ray had finally brought their three children through the crazy maze of adolescence and gently pushed them out of the house. Jane was glad they had flown the coop. Finally, she was going to, going to have a life of her own, get back her, on her own track and make something of herself. But a family tragedy stopped her. Ralph's, Ray's younger brother and his wife were killed in a car accident and left three children ages 8, 10, and 12 all by themselves. Ray had a strong sense of duty. He knew that it was his sacred calling to take his brother's orphaned children in. Jane was too compassionate or too tired to disagree. She never knew which. She took them in, not for a month, but for the duration. As for Ray, he was gone a lot a traveling man on the road making deals. Nine years grown by. Two of the kids are gone. The only one still home is 17. His mind bent slightly out of shape but functional. In a few years, Jane and Ray would be home free. Not quite. Jane's body had gotten a little lumpy by this time. While Ray's secretary, Sue, well, she was a dazzler. Besides, Sue really understood his large male needs. How could he help falling in love? Ray and Sue knew that their love was too true to be denied and too powerful to be resisted. So Ray divorced Jane and he married Sue. Ray and Sue were very happy and they dunked their happiness in a warm religious froth. Their kind, accepting church celebrated their newfound joy with them. They were kept afloat in togetherness by their affirming Christian community. But Ray needed one more stroke of acceptance. So he called Jane and asked her to forgive him and be glad with him that he was finally a happy man. I want you to bless me, he said. I want you to go to hell, she replied. What? Forgive? Throw away the only power that she had, the strength of her hate, the energy of her contempt? Her contempt was her power, her dignity, her self-esteem. It was unfair to ask her to forgive. The least the louse deserved was a steady stream of her scorn. Listen to this. When we urge people to forgive, are we asking them to suffer twice? First, they suffer the wrong of another person's assault. 
They were ripped off, betrayed, left out in the cold. Now must they suffer a second injury and swallow an insult to boot. They are stuck with the hurt. Must they also bless the person who hurt them? This is what forgiveness really looks like in our life. I mean, it's a nice, pretty word that can roll off our tongue on a Sunday morning. But when you're the Janes of this life, it becomes a lot more difficult. Some of you have felt similar pain. Some of you have felt pains far worse than this. And how do you really forgive? Why do preachers walk around talking about forgiveness? And is it really fair to do so? Is it really fair to do that? You know, we live in a society that actually is pretty strong on justice. For all the things that we have going against us, justice is a cry you hear daily. And it started about 20 years ago. When now we've kind of changed the word justice maybe a little bit into what we call entitlement. How many of you have ever mowed your lawn before? Have any of you ever mowed? Have it, how many of you have mowed it with a push mower? How many of you can remember the day before they had that silly little hand bar that you had to pull up and hold. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Do you remember the good old days when you could, just, you could pull it and you could walk away from your mower and it would run just fine? But nowadays they have this bar on there, right? That if you hold on to the bar, and what happens if you let go of the bar? It dies. Okay, which is a complete pain. Which, by the way, the best way to remedy that is just one of those Velcro strips and just Velcro it up, and it's great. Get, you know, get some kind of wire. Because I can remember as a child, we, you know, you'd have that and, and there would be a stick in the way. And you know how hard it, I mean, I would reach, you know, try, I mean, that had to be more dangerous than anything else. I'm reaching right for as far as I can to grab that stick. Because I know I'm not supposed to run over it because it'll make a loud noise and my dad will hear and I'll be in trouble for running over the stick. You know, or try to hold it with my foot, you know, and, and try to reach out. And then ultimately, you just let it go. It dies, and you pick up the stick and throw it, and then you got yank, 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 start it back up again, right? You want to know why they have that bar there? You know what really happened? This is a true story. A guy about 20 years ago, prior to the bar, he's mowing his lawn, and he looks over at his hedges, and they're in bad shape. But he doesn't want to go get his hedge trimmer. So he decides that he's going to grab his lawnmower, pick it up, and he's going to trim his hedges with his lawnmower. And in the process, loses his fingers. And decides that that's unfair, that he lost his fingers. And he cries justice. And he contacts a lawyer, and his lawyer contacts the lawn mowing. Uh, the lawnmower manufacturer and says, you cut off my fingers. Your lawnmower cut off my fingers. And so I don't know how much money he ended up getting. But in addition to that, all the lawnmower companies decided we have to make a way so somebody doesn't mistakenly use that, you know, to trim their hedges or cut their hair or whatever, <laughs> you know. I think it would have been easier if he cut his hair with it. I mean, but he tried... <laughs> And so that happened. It's a cry for justice. 
If somebody does something wrong, then somebody else should have to pay for it. That's how it goes. I can remember this. I, I'm, I caught the tail end, or, or maybe my parents were old school, but they believed firmly in the fact that if I got it in trouble at school, I got in trouble at home. The teacher was right. We didn't have to have a conference with the teacher. The teacher was already right. And so if I got in trouble at school, if I came home with a bad grade or I was talking too much, which of course I would never do because I don't like to talk at all. I mean, that would not be at all. But let's pretend if I got in trouble at school, then I got in trouble at home. But justice cries out, there's no way my son could do that. My daughter would never get in trouble. It's somebody else's fault. And I have listened to parents tell me how they have a plan to go up to the, the school and they're going to go after the teacher. And if the principal won't do anything about it, they're going to go to the board meeting and they're going to try to have this person fired because they made their child do homework or they got a bad grade or they got in trouble for doing something in class and it's perfectly okay for their child to do this. It's a cry of justice. Or so they think it is. Jennifer used to be a teacher in Mansfield, second grade teacher for about eight years and did a phenomenal job and I love to hear her stories. One of my favorite stories, uh, and I may be telling this wrong, but there, <laughs> there's a little boy who decided after he was done with his lunch he wanted a dessert, but he didn't have enough money for a dessert, so he decided that he would, he would go in and, and get a dessert from the cafeteria while everybody's sitting down. He's going to walk through the line, he's going to grab one. Well, he knew that when he got up to pay for it, he couldn't pay for it. So he did the only thing he knew to do. He ran. He grabbed his ice cream sandwich and took off. So he could go hurry and eat it real fast. Well, several teachers saw a little boy running out screaming, holding his ice cream sandwich. And he was brought in. And he was talked to. And the, the parent was called. And the parent went on to tell my wife and everybody else who saw the incident that they were wrong, that her son didn't do that, and he would never do that. And there was no way that they would allow, uh, that she would allow them to punish him in any way for stealing a sandwich, an ice cream sandwich. Well, how do you think it's going to go for that mom in a few years? That was so long ago, he's probably, he's probably of age now. My guess is that if she keeps on doing that, if she keeps screaming justice, that you can't do that, that it's not fair, that it's somebody else's fault, I mean, she'll have good visiting rights. And that's kind of what our society is coming to. And it's this overcry for justice that we say, if somebody does something to me, something else has to happen. Uh, Scotty, if he were here, I would have him explain it more. But I think we understand the concept of punitive damages. It's basically when, when somebody, uh, let's say for instance, um, uh, Stouffer sells you a lasagna and it has some salmonella in it and you get sick from it. Um, you know, a normal person would say, okay, you gave me a bad lasagna, 
I think you owe me a lasagna in return and we'll call it even. I mean, that's kind of how it works, right? Punitive damages says, no, it's not enough that you have to give up a lasagna because that doesn't really hurt you at all. You need to feel the pain of knowing that I had to eat a lasagna that was bad. So instead of giving me a lasagna, I want, to, I want you to give me $2.4 million so you can feel the pain that I felt, that I want you to have that same pain. It's, it's one of the causes uh, of... Um, why we have health care bills rising so much. Uh, you talk to a doctor who pays insurance uh, sometimes in the amount of $20,000 a month because they know that if some person is unhappy with a procedure, it doesn't go just right, that family can sue right or wrong and, and shut down his practice. We cry justice. So where do we find that line between forgiveness and justice? Does forgiveness take away justice? If you remove that, if you remove your anger, what does that mean? Now, I'm, I'm asking this question and I want you to answer it. What happens... If Jane chooses to forgive Ray, her attitude changes. She'll heal. But, but is she sending a message that says that any man can leave his wife and go off and be with his secretary and that it's really okay? Is that a message that's being sent? We're leaving God out. We love to do that, don't we? We want to think that we're the ones who ultimately make the call on Ray. We think that really what we ultimately decide, whether he's forgiven or not, really determines whether or not God will forgive him or if he will have any other consequences for that. One thing I want us to understand, and we're going to look at this a little later on. We're going to have a, it'll probably take a couple classes uh, to look at um, a topic called what forgiveness is not. Because there's a lot of things that forgiveness isn't. I don't believe that forgiveness is forgetting. I don't think it's possible to forget some of the things that have happened to us. In fact, I think it would be wrong for us to forget some of the things that happened to us. As we talked about two weeks ago, forgiveness, when we get hurt, is like a scar. It's a reminder not only of the hurt that we felt, but even greater is the healing that we received. The last uh, section I want to look at in just a few minutes comes from Matthew chapter 18, 21 through 25. And I'll read this uh, real quickly because um, we're, we're almost out of time. Uh, and, and I apologize, this is a parable, which means that if you were here several months ago in one of our Sunday morning classes, I covered this parable. But it, it gives the best example, I think, in the Bible of what forgiveness is. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. This is really generous for him to say seven times because according to the rabbis, three was a good number. I think Peter was expecting Jesus to say seven. Wow, that's really generous. I think seven's a great number. So Peter's expecting a pat on the back. Instead, he gets maybe a little slap on the wrist. When Jesus answered, verse 22, I tell you, not seven times, 
but 77 times. And in the Greek, there's a little confusion. It might even say 7 times 70. But I don't think Jesus was concerned about a number. If you're counting, then you're really not forgiving. If you get to 76 and you're thinking one more time and that's it, I'm done, Betty. I don't have to forgive you any more times. One more time and I'm done. And then number 78, boom, I don't have to forgive you anymore. Or even if you're so generous to, to read that it's 490 times, 7 times 70. You know, I, Jennifer, have we gotten to the 490 yet? I mean, how many times a day do you have to forgive me? We've been married for over 14 years. I'm, I'm probably getting pretty close to 490 times 6. Um, and so... I mean, is there, do you have a log book that says 491, it's over, babe. I don't have to forgive you anymore. It's kind of silly to think that somebody would be counting that, but this is something that they did. <clears throat> Lord, uh, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a man, excuse me, like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents, uh, a talent, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get really confused. A talent, if I understand correctly, worked out to somewhere about a million dollars. Uh, a talent is, uh, it's 60 pounds, 60 pounds. And if it's gold, uh, I had to do the numbers and I visited a little bit with Harold Brown, the jeweler, and he kind of gave me an idea of what that was. It was a lot more money than you could ever imagine. It was in the billions of, of dollars. And, and what Jesus is really saying, it's an impossible amount to repay. There is no way that this servant can generate enough income to in any way pay off the 10,000 talents that he owed. So he was not able to pay. The master ordered, uh, uh, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had to be sold to repay the debt. This was common. That's something that they would do then which is a reminder to us that when we have sin in our life, not only does it affect us, it can affect the rest of our family too. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. How much of a joke is that? Be patient with me. I'm, you know, I can go get a couple billion dollars here. Just hang on for just a little bit. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found out one of his fellow servants who owed him a few hundred denarii. Denarii is about a day's wages, so this is about three months. For some reason, some uh, commentators have said, oh, it's a few dollars. Uh, I don't think that's a, a, a fair assessment. I, I think Jesus is saying, okay, it's definitely not, it's definitely not the 10,000 talents, but it's still a good bit. Because I think, I think Jesus wanted us to be reminded of the fact that when you forgive, it is a big deal. And sometimes it really is hard and hurtful. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants owed him a few hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I will pay you back. It's almost the exact same thing that this man had said just a few moments ago. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. 
I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your own fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. He's going to have a tough time paying it back when he's in jail, won't he? This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. That's a tough last sentence to swallow. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. That's what we're called to. Now, this does not say that in forgiving some person that that is going to affect how God will treat that person. Please do not think that somehow your unwillingness to forgive means that God will or will not forgive that person who's hurt you. I, I think we need to be careful not to think, well, if I don't forgive that person, that means they're not forgiven. That means that they're going to hell, and that's what I really want for them. No, unforgiveness does not affect them. It affects you. You're the one who remains the prisoner in that jail cell that oddly enough, is unlocked, but many of us refuse to walk out of. Because for some reason it feels good. That's what I want to leave with this morning, is the thought of why does it feel so good? <laughs> Burnell? Yeah, because if we look back, for some reason there's some comfort in it. Have you ever had that comfort in that? Have you ever had the comfort of being, being a victim? Is that a weird thing to say? Have any of you? I have. I've, I've had the comfort of being a victim. It's almost like a warm blanket that you can pull over that says, I've been hurt, I've been cheated, I've been wronged, and it almost feels good to hate. And I remember going through a, the process of unforgiveness when somebody would say, and Jennifer said this to me, said, she said, Doug, you need to pray for that person. And I looked right at her and says, I don't want to. I don't want to pray to forgive them. Why would I want to do that? I mean, because for some sick reason, there's some satisfaction that comes from knowing every day that you've been anger, you've been hurt, and you've been a victim, and it's something that you can kind of cling to. And it's what you think about when, when you have conversations with people, you, you want them to know that you were the one that was hurt, that you were the victim. But we're stuck in it, Jennifer.
Yes. Every single day. And this is one of the things that I learned through this, and some of you have different experiences, and we'll close on this because we're way, way past. Uh, one thing I want to understand, when Jesus, uh, when Peter said, how many times do I forgive someone? I think Jesus could have really honestly said, how bad were you hurt? And the reason why Jesus would ask that is because he would then go on to say, if you've been hurt really bad, you have to forgive a whole lot of times. That, that was the hardest thing for me in the process of forgiveness is because there were days that I would pray specifically that God would release me, that, he, that I would forgive them, that things would go well for them and I would wish them well and I could have good positive thoughts about that person. And the very next day, I'm reaching for the harpoon because I want to stick it in their back. And you know what I had to do that day? It was starting all over again. But that's how forgiveness works. You forgive that day, and then when you get up the next morning and you feel that same anger, hurt, resentment, guilt creeping in, you start all over and you forgive again. Seven times 70, maybe so. And it may be for that one instance, but you have to be very intentional about that. And that's what I want to call each one of you to do, is that if there is some anger or resentment in your life, be very intentional about it starting yesterday, today. Start asking for forgiveness and working that out. And tomorrow when you wake up and you're angry and you're hurt, don't be surprised. You're going to have to go through some rough days and continue to work on that forgiveness. And someday, years down the road, you will be a clean and healthy person. And if you don't fight that every day, in 20 or 30 years, you'll still be angry and bitter and time will have healed nothing. And you're stuck with it. And it will have affected your whole life. And most importantly, it's going to affect your relationship with God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for canceling the debt, that as we came before you, each one of us uh, uh, recognizing that we were a sinful people and the debt that we owed was too great and you stood before us and said, I am canceling your debt, I'm tearing it up, it is paid in full. And now you have sent us out into this world and there are people who owe us, who have hurt us, who have wronged us and our children and our family who have taken away times of happiness because they have sowed in words of hate and actions of bitterness. And Lord, that's not easy to forgive either. And yet in the same way that you've forgiven us, we pray that you'll give us a heart that will in turn forgive others. For these women, you have powerful plans in their lives and you are wanting to take away those logs that are hindering them. So Lord, we pray that you will help each one of us give those up so that we can serve you and glorify you more fully. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.